criminal law, we have another inchoated crime, and it's called conspiracy. So far, we've talked about conspiracy attempt. Well, we we're about to start talking about conspiracy, but we've talked about attempt and solicitation up to this point. And now it's really time for us to move into conspiracy. And uh, before getting into it, I want to talk just a little bit about how these crimes interact with one another. You can imagine it almost as if a progression where one crime is a little less worse than the other, the next is a little less worse than the next, so on and so forth. So if we were to look at all of this together, the way to think about this is that solicitation is an attempted conspiracy. Conspiracy is really a prerequisite for attempt when two people are conspiring it's a prereq for attempt and then you attempt the crime and then you have the actual substantive crime that is committed and so that's kind of how they all interact with one another and now let's talk about what conspiracy is it's important to note that the conspiracy to commit a crime and the actual commission of a crime don't merge and that means that a person can be both guilty of conspiracy and the completion of that crime. We have a couple of cases here just to illustrate this principle. So we start with People v. Carter. This case teaches us that conspiracy is a partnership that is formed for the sake of committing a crime. It's two elements. First, it's the intent to combine with others, and second, the intent to accomplish an illegal objective. Notice that that's a dual intent crime. You need to have the intent to agree, and you need to have the intent to accomplish the crime. If the actual crime is carried out, the person can be both guilty of conspiracy and the actual crime. Let's go over an example. We have Pinkerton versus the United States. Here, there are two brothers. One brother was in jail already, so he wasn't involved with the substantive parts of the crime, but the other brother was out of jail and they had conspired together to avoid taxes. They got caught and the brother in jail was convicted of several substantive crimes even though he had not actually committed the substantive crimes. So one brother was convicted of 10 charges, the other brother was, sorry, yeah, nine charges plus conspiracy, so 10 charges. The other brother was convicted of six charge uh, six substantive crimes plus conspiracy so seven charges and the brother in this pinkerton case the one who was in jail is saying i didn't do these crimes i can't be guilty for these crimes and that's where we get into the pinkerton rule so pinkerton says that an overt action of one partner can make all other partners guilty of the crime there are a couple of limits to this rule meaning If the partner didn't further the crime, if the crime is not within the scope of the conspiracy, or if the conspiracy and the consequences of that are not reasonably foreseeable. Those are the three exceptions to this Pinkerton rule. Let's go over just a brief example. So we have Pinkerton as our overarching example, but let's go for a brief example to figure out what people are directly liable for and what people might be liable for underneath Pinkerton. Say that a group of people, a group of four people, conspire together. They form this conspiracy. 
Person A is the ringleader. He forms all the information. Person B is going to rob bank number one. Person C is going to rob bank number two. And person D is going to provide the getaway car. And person D is going to steal the getaway car. Underneath direct liability, person A is only guilty of conspiracy. Person B is guilty of conspiracy and the robbery of bank number one. Person C is guilty for conspiracy and robbery of bank number two. And then person D would be guilty of conspiracy and car theft. However, underneath the Pinkerton rule, because all these individuals are part of the conspiracy, well, then they are liable for all other crimes involved. So, for example, person A was liable, well, what only conspired, he was the ringleader. But underneath the Pinkerton rule, he's also going to be liable for the crimes of the robbery of Bank 1, the robbery of Bank 2, and the car theft, because those are all things that other people did. Person B had robbed Bank Number 1 and was guilty of conspiracy, but he can also be liable of the robbing of Bank 2 and the robbery well, the car theft. Uh, person C just kind of flip-flops that where they're liable for bank number one, bank number two, and the car theft. And then the person who stole the car, person number D, can be liable for the bank, robbery of bank number one, and the robbery of bank number two. That's just saying Pinkerton makes everyone involved in the conspiracy liable. The mens rea for, the cons- for conspiracy is that you need to meet both of these. This is kind of similar to attempt, where attempt is a specific intent kind of crime, meaning it needs to match that intent. And if the mens rea is negated, then you can't be guilty of attempt. Same exact thing with conspiracy. It needs to be committed towards a specific intent crime. You can't be... Uh, You can't conspire for an unintentional homicide or any other unintentional crime. And that is because, well, if you can't conspire, but if if it's unintentional, how can you conspire to do something? You can't plan something if it's unintentional. The actus reus of this is that you can find that somebody had actually conspired, been involved in a conspiracy by looking at some circumstantial evidence. You can look at the association of others um, alleged to be in the conspiracy. You can look at the knowledge that the person may have had with the commission of the crime. You can look at whether people were present at the scene of the crime, and you can actually look in the participation of committing the crime. All those things where if someone's claiming, oh, well, I, I didn't conspire. I wasn't a conspirator in that thing. You can look at circumstantial evidence to say, yes, you were because dot, dot, dot. You were there, you had knowledge, you were present, uh, and, and you participated in some way. One last thing to note is that there is a difference between a conspirator and an accomplice. A conspirator is someone who needs to intend and to agree and then intend to commit the crime. An accomplice is somebody who just helps with the commission of a crime. They didn't need to previously agree to commit a crime. They just needs to be there to help. 
So some accomplices are conspirators and vice versa, but not always. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.